1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Before I get into the text this morning, I want to frame this sermon with a historical account of an amazing African-American woman. Um, her name was Armina Ross, or Minty, as her parents called her. Um, I don't know about you, but I just love that name, Minty. Um, she was born sometime between 1820 and 1825. Uh, we don't know exactly when she was born, uh, not only year or month, um, because she was a third-generation slave, and that's just not something they kept very good records on. Her grandmother uh, was named Modesty. She was brought over from Africa and sold into slavery in Maryland. And by the time Minty was born, her masters had more slaves uh, than they had land to work. And so what would happen in those cases is they wouldn't want to get rid of the slaves, um, so they would rent them out. They would hire them out for uh, the day, or they would hire them out to a family, and the family would then pay the owners um, kind of a way for them to keep generating income off of their uh, slaves or, in their mind, their property. And Minty was one of these slaves that was rented out, and she was rented out for the first time when she was five years old. Think about that for a second. Five years old. She was rented out as a baby rocker. Now, what a baby rocker would do is a family would hire a, a slave like Minty to come and stay up through the night and rock the baby back to sleep so that that baby wouldn't inconvenience and bother the parents and the parents could sleep through the night. But here's the thing, every time the baby cried, Minty would be beaten by the woman of the house because she would be awakened and that was not what she wanted. So she would beat this five-year-old for a baby crying. She was hired out to get muskrats out of traps and swamps. And uh, as she got older, she was a very strong woman, like her physically, uh, just a very uh, physically fit woman. And so the owners recognized that, and they, instead of renting her out, they, they kept her to do the housework around the house and to begin to work in the fields and to do the various things on the plantation that she served. But again, each time the master's wife wasn't satisfied with her cooking or her cleaning, she would receive a beating. You could say for Minty, suffering was a daily part of her life. And when Minty was a teenager, she was in a store, and a man was trying to catch another fugitive slave. And Minty made the mistake, although once you learn a little bit more about Minty, it might not have been a mistake, but she got in between the man who was trying to chase down the fugitive slave and the man had an iron in his hand that he was going to hit the fugitive slave with and instead hit Minty in the head. What we would now diagnose her with a traumatic brain injury. Now, for the rest of her life, she suffered from narcolepsy and seizures. Now, I have a friend uh, who has been diagnosed with narcolepsy and they have shared with me how hard it was to live before the diagnosis 
But I can't imagine being a slave with narcolepsy. Can you? You're just working and you sit down and you just fall asleep. What do you think the master is going to think about you? I mean, this is a recipe for beating after beating after beating for being lazy. So her owners recognize that her health is failing and she is not as valuable. So they decide to try to sell her. Now, again, just think for a moment. You're in your 20s, early 20s. Three generations of your family live on this one plantation. Your grandmother, your mother, your brothers and sisters. And now all of a sudden, because you're not useful, the master decides, hey, I'm going to put her up for sale. She's going to be separated from everyone she knows. Because of something that was completely out of her control. Not because of any fault of her own. When, when she was struck by that iron, it changed her life. And now your master is trying to sell you and separate you from everyone you know and love. At this point in Minty's life, she is suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, every day of her life. And I'll return to Minnie's story in a little bit later in the sermon, but, it, but it's important, and I wanted you to have a little bit of background so that when I talk about her in the end of this sermon, that you'll understand where she was coming from. So let's, let's take a moment before I get into some of the other details, and, and let's just read First Thessalonians chapter 3 together as a church, and we'll put this up on the screen for you. If you can, read along. Um, if you're illiterate like Minty, you don't have to. Um, that was, a, that was a joke. It was a terrible joke. I got it. <laughs> Verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker, the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? 
for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Now much of this chapter is going to be echoing what Paul has said in chapter 2. And Jamie did a good job of, of unpacking that for us over the last couple of weeks. And Paul is clearly missing this church, right? This is, this is almost two chapters worth of longing and desire to see this church again. But there's something, there's something else in this chapter. There's something important that we find that, that I want to zoom in and I want to spend most of our time this morning, because I believe it's one of the main reasons that Paul writes not only this chapter, but the entire letter to 1 Thessalonians. And the verses that I want to bring your attention to is verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5, when Paul says this, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What is this? The afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know, for this reason, when I could, not, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul here, I think, shows us his real concern that he has kind of only hinted at up until this point. Paul has already told them that the enemy had hindered him from coming back to see them back in chapter 2, right? He, he's wanting to go back. He's wanting to see the church at, at, at Thessalonica, and, and yet he is being hindered. Every, every time there is some reason why he can't go. Paul here now reveals that he is concerned that that same enemy may have tempted them and that all of his labor would have been in vain. We also learn something else that I think is really, really important in these verses. Something that I think has been neglected, honestly, in the American church for the past seven or eight decades at least, maybe longer. I'm getting older. I used to be three or four decades. <laughs> but, but if you were here when I did the, the first sermon introducing the book of 1 Thessalonians, I mentioned that I would love to know what Paul and company taught them in the very short time that he was with them, right? It's like, Paul's kind of giving a, a, a nutshell version, if you will, of the gospel. And, and that, that seed that was planted has grown into a church. And it's like, man, what? He only had a couple of weeks. 
So what was it he told them that led to so much faith? Well, these verses show us one element of this teaching during that time. Obviously, given the short time, it was clear that Paul uh, drove home the importance of the gospel. The gospel is the word of God Paul was referring to back in chapter 2, verses 13. The gospel is what they received, not as words of men, but as words from God. That was the gospel. Now, the gospel is not just something that leads us to salvation, but the gospel is also the source of our sanctification. And I think if you ask the average American churchgoer, what's the gospel? They would tell you something like Jesus died for our sins and that when we put our faith in his sacrifice and accept the free gift of grace, that this is the gospel. But what is clear from these verses in chapter 3 is that Paul also taught something else important about the gospel. Namely, that the gospel is not just a call to eternal life, but it's also a call to suffer in this life. If you're taking notes, this is going to be point number one, that a theology of suffering is at the heart of the gospel. A good theology of suffering is at the heart of the gospel, or at least it should be. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Again, talking about the afflictions that they had experienced. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Do you catch that? Part of Gospel 101 for Paul is informing potential and new believers that they are destined for affliction in this life. According to Paul, Paul's gospel, affliction and suffering is a feature, not a bug. Suffering is not something that is an exception. It is the rule. Now, if we are students of Jesus' teaching... This should not shock us. It should not surprise us at all. But sadly, through many of us, though many of us, we've neglected Jesus' words and instead listened to charlatans masquerading as men of God. They have told us what we have wanted to hear, mainly that Jesus would never call us to suffer. He wants our best life now. We're children of God after all. And he wants nothing but the best for us. Which is true in one sense. But the way in which we get that is the same way in which Jesus got it. Through a road of suffering and affliction. There's a lot I could personally say about this and about how wrong that kind of theology is. But instead of listening to me, let me remind you of what Jesus taught. So you can get mad at him. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Take up your cross, Jesus says. Just, just here's a little bit of Dale commentary, right? This is the symbol of the worst suffering and affliction of the time. This is the worst. This is, this is as bad as it gets. And Jesus says, go over there and pick that up. This isn't just Paul's gospel as opposed to Jesus' gospel. Paul is just building on what Jesus has already said to us. Jesus is saying the way to finding life is through suffering and affliction, not avoiding it. John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Some of you, a few of you, the non-American versions of you, right? Just the African Christians and the Chinese Christians, they're the ones that will be persecuted. But you Americans, you get a special pass. No. All of us. The words of Jesus are followed by Paul, James, and Peter. And again, I'm, I am just going to give you what God's word says. Romans 5, 2 through 5. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? This is the hope of the eternal life that we are given. Verse 3, though, not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering is useless and pointless. No, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How? How is the Spirit poured into us through suffering? This is the way that the room is made in our hearts. you got to get the love of this world out of your heart. And for many of us, the only way that can happen is affliction and suffering to make room for the Spirit of God to be poured into you. James 1, 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials in various kinds, right? He doesn't say sit around and complain, sit around and question, why is bad things happening to me? No, believers, count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why does he want you to suffer and go through trials and afflictions? So that you will be lacking 
and nothing. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Right? This is, again, this is Paul's Gospel 101. Tell them beforehand. Tell them before the suffering and affliction comes so that they're ready for it. Then he goes on to say, as though something strange were happening to you. What is this? Why in the world am I going through this? Why am I dealing with this physical problem? Why am I dealing with this loss? Peter says, it's it's nothing strange. This is a feature, not a bug. This is the rule, not the exception. But rejoice. Again, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And this is an important point. Don't go suffer and be stupid just to suffer. There's enough suffering and affliction in the world. Don't go looking for it, my friend. Okay? Do it because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 21. Really, I could have just read the whole book of 1 Peter, but I don't have time. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Man, when I read that verse, I thought about Minty. I thought about all the ways that she was suffering unjustly. She didn't choose to be there. She didn't choose to be born into a third-generation slave family. She didn't choose to have to go to work at five years old, never receiving a formal education. Talk about suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might go, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's, that's, I'm glad he did that so I don't have to. Is that what that says? So that you might follow in his steps. Now, I could go on and on. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, Romans 8, 18 through 30, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, chapter 4, verses 7 through chapter 5, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, and nearly all of 1 Peter. Again, I could be here all day just reading Scripture. Now, I'm I'm not sure how one can read all these passages as a believer and see and not see that a theology of suffering is at the heart of the gospel. Believers should not be surprised nor discouraged by suffering in this life. The only way one can be surprised is if they're not reading the New Testament. And if instead you're listening to people pretending to be men of God, telling you that God doesn't ever want you to suffer. And in my flesh, I can understand 
why that false teaching would be so appealing. But I just can't reconcile it with the clear words in the New Testament. Guys, these aren't things I'm having to like figure out the metaphor for. This is clear teaching in Scripture. So it's important that we are upfront with people that following Jesus means following him into the eternal life to come, but also taking up your cross and following him as he uses the suffering and affliction in this sinful world to sanctify us. It is important. It is, I would even say it is imperative that you tell them up front beforehand. We need to follow Paul's example and teach disciples a theology of suffering at the very beginning of their walk with God. This way, they won't be surprised when affliction and suffering come. And this leads me to my second point, if you're taking notes. I want to look at a couple of dangers of a gospel without a theology of suffering. And we see this in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could not, when, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The first danger of a gospel without a theology of suffering is that the enemy will come along and make you doubt if God really even loves you. Right? That, that's the temptation. Go, go back to the beginning. Did God really say that? Would God really do that? Right? He, he's not outright contradicting what God said. He's, he's just trying to get you to doubt. He doesn't really love you. If he loved you, you could eat all the fruit. This is the central theme of the book of Job in the Old Testament, right? Satan tells God, the only reason Job loves you is because he's never suffered. But Job proved him wrong. How? How did Job prove him wrong? By experiencing the suffering and saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If we're not prepared for suffering, then we will be tempted to doubt God's goodness. The second danger will be in our relationship with God. We'll be tempted to think that, that God has forgotten us or that God won't be able to, to use us because of our suffering and affliction. I, I see this all the time. People like, well, you know, I don't understand why God has got me in this place and I'm, I'm going through all this suffering and affliction and I just want to be used by God. I wish I had the money to take every one of you to Guatemala to sit at the foot of the bed of a man named Caesar. Some of you have had the, the privilege of meeting Caesar on our mission trips to Guatemala. Caesar has a rare condition where all of his bones have fused together. He's been bedridden since I've known him. And yet, people come from all over the world to the foot of his bed 
to listen to him preach and share the gospel. You see, it's in his suffering and affliction that he is being used by God. See, some of us, we look at our suffering and our affliction and go, oh, I can't do anything for God. I can't be used by God. I'm here to tell you that's not true. But, but that kind of thinking will begin to damage your relationship with God if you let it continue. We'll see in a minute even more how that couldn't be farther from the truth. But then many have walked away from the Lord when they've experienced suffering and affliction. And for those that, that don't walk away, they, they tend to become bitter and just live a life of resignation. I'm sure if you've lived long enough, you've met both of those people. The, the people that don't want anything to do with God's church and, and the people that are in it but are the worst witness for it. Because they've just, just allowed their hearts to get embittered. Because they were surprised by suffering and affliction. These are the people that Paul was hoping were not tempted. Now that we've talked about a couple of the dangers, let's look at, let's look at the benefits. If you're taking notes, this is the final section. The, the benefits of having a solid theology of suffering and here I'm leaning on some people much wiser than myself David Powelson Timothy Keller and I, and I want to summarize and kind of distill four benefits of suffering there are a lot more but just for the sake of time I want to look at what I think are probably the four biggest benefits of suffering First, suffering transforms our attitude toward ourselves. First, suffering transforms our attitude toward ourselves. Suffering humbles us. Affliction humbles us, and it helps to remove pride because it shows us how fragile we are. It removes the delusion that we are in control. And it reminds us of how vulnerable and dependent on God we really are. It helps us to examine our weakness. It's often in moments of suffering and affliction that we begin to see some areas that we have even hidden from ourselves. Or that we've overlooked as character traits and well this is the way I was born or what however you want to excuse away your sinful behavior most of us when we are sick that that exposes our weak faith it, it exposes our selfishness our laziness. It exposes our worry. 
Sometimes it even exposes the bitterness that's already there taking root in our heart. Sometimes during affliction and suffering, we learn that we are too abrasive. We, we are too critical and ungenerous. That we're impulsive and impatient, argumentative and stubborn. And again, many of us learn just how desperate we are to be in control of everything and everyone around us. Suffering allows us to overcome our denial and begin working on our issues if we let it. Again, it can make you run from God, it can make you embittered with God, or it can transform you into the person that God wants you to be. And some of you have experienced a lot of suffering and affliction because you like option one and option two and rarely submit to option three. And God loves you. He's not giving up. So first, it transforms our attitude toward ourselves. Second, suffering will profoundly change our relationship to the good things in our lives. You see, sometimes things become way too important to us. And, and, and we, can, we can hear that in subtle little things that we say throughout the day. Because something will happen at work and it just ruins your day. Well, you've elevated work or your career or your position into a place into which now it has the ability to rob you of your joy. See, that, that's a place that only should be reserved for the Lord. And our standing with him never changes. If we, are, if we, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are his child. But suffering will often expose and reveal that I worship my job way too much. And so all of a sudden you lose that job. There's layoffs. Maybe again, something outside of your control. And it reminds you that the thing that I really valued was control. That's the thing I worship. The, the job was just feeding my control. Because as long as I got that paycheck, I can do whatever I want to do. We may come to realize the amount of grief that it's caused because of the excessive weight that we have put on whatever that thing is. And the loss can create a unique opportunity to invest more in God than our career, than our desire for control. Right? We, we, get a, we get a moment, we get an opportunity because of suffering and affliction to turn our attention back to where it needs to be focused. So suffering will profoundly change our relationship to the good things in our lives. And this, this helps us in the future as we experience another setback, right? I mean, I, I joke with people all the time when I'm counseling, like, you have not lived until you've been fired. Because most of you 
are terrified to leave this horrible job you have because you don't know what's going to happen. But once you get fired and you find out, hey, there's another job. I got another job. Then you don't stick around places anymore that you don't need to be at, right? So that loss empowers you to then experience another setback and go, you know what? I've, I've lost better jobs than this one, <laughs> right? That's what I always tell people when I get kicked off of a golf course. I'll be like, I got kicked off of a much better course than this one. And I go about my day and I have a good day, right? So it helps you experience and overcome future setbacks. Third, and probably most of all, suffering can strengthen our relationship to God as nothing else can. C.S. Lewis once said that in prosperity, God whispers to us, but in adversity, in other words, affliction and suffering, he shouts to us. Now, suffering can test our relationship with God. And like I mentioned in the second section, that, that this testing can tempt us to be angry with God, right? So that can be a danger of suffering. But suffering has the ability to deepen our friendship with God. After all, when, when times are good, how do you know if you love God or just love the things that he is giving and doing for you? When things are going well, it's easy to think that you have a loving relationship with God. Coming to church, singing, praying can feel comfortable during these times of ease. It, it, it can even be encouraging to you. But as Lewis says, when God is shouting at us through our suffering, these questions start to raise up in our minds, was our relationship only good as long as God waited on you hand and foot? Did you get into this relationship for me to serve you or for you to serve me? Were you loving me before or only loving the things that I was giving you? It's only in suffering that faith and trust can be known to be truly in God. And therefore, it's only in suffering that our love relationship with God can become more genuine. Suffering also has a way of bringing our prayer life to life. The pain is where faith is born. Are you alive yet? Finally, suffering is almost a prerequisite if we are going to be of much use to God and other people. Especially when they go through their own trials. Suffering is almost a prerequisite if we are going to be able, if we're going to be of much use to God and other people, especially when those people go through their own trials. You see, adverse, adversity makes us far more compassionate 
than we would have been otherwise. Before our own suffering, if we're honest, we would look at others and wonder why people can't just suck it up and keep going. But after suffering comes to us, we understand. I was talking to a pastor one time and trying to counsel and encourage him. And he was sharing to me that he got so angry that as he was preaching, he would look out over the congregation and he would see a couple of women sleeping. And after, you know, a little conversation about preaching style and those kind of things and making sure he wasn't, you know, talking in a monotone voice, putting people to sleep. I asked him, I said, why do you think that is? Because they don't care. I said, really? He's like, that, that's, that's what you think? He said, well, why else would they fall asleep? I said, well, my daughter was diagnosed with diabetes when she was six, and my wife rarely sleeps more than two hours straight any given night. She lives most of her life tired, and when she sits still and it's somewhat quiet and the air conditioning's just right, she might fall asleep. It has nothing to do with you. And he looked at me, and he was like, I never thought about that. I said, well, there's some other people in my church that they work at the prison, and they work the night shift, and they come from the prison to church because they don't want to miss church. And about halfway through, sometimes they fall asleep. Again, that has nothing to do with you. But they love God so much, they want to be in his house. And yet you're going to criticize them because they're not awake in his house. You see, that pastor had never suffered adversity. I mean, I'm sure he had in other ways, but, but not in those ways. And so he wasn't much use in serving his people in that one area. But, but when you go through that suffering, it now expands your ability to help and serve others who have suffered. When we have suffered, we become more tender-hearted and able to help others in their suffering. Again, if we let God do the work he's doing through suffering and affliction. Again, the opposite can be true. We can become embittered, hard-hearted, and just be like, suck it up because I do it all the time. Again, you, you know some of those people. You went to church with them. <laughs> 70 years old. I've been here every Sunday. What's your excuse? <laughs> been through six horrible pastors, but I'm still here. And don't you sit in my chair. Right? You can become embittered and mean. Or you can allow that suffering and affliction to do the work that God wants it to do. So that you lack in nothing. And you are evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in every ways of your life. Suffering creates wisdom. In people. I often wondered as a young kid why there were so many people that I went to church with that had been Christians for 40 years and they were not wise. So 
Suffering creates wisdom in people if they handle it and it doesn't make them hard. It's almost a prerequisite. If we are going to be used by God, we're going to experience suffering and an affliction so that we can then minister to those who are experiencing, guess what? Suffering and affliction. That we should not be surprised about. That we should not think, oh, there's something wrong. No, this is a part of the Christian life. This is a part of taking up your cross and following him. In closing, let me get back to where we started. With our new friend, Minty. The little slave girl. With all the suffering and affliction that she experienced by her early 20s, one might think that she would be tempted to walk away from God. Or that she would become this embittered person toward him. Yet despite all the injustice that she suffered, despite suffering physically, despite being illiterate, despite suffering emotionally, many let all these things mold her and shape her into the woman of God that she would become. I dare say almost every one of you in this room know who Minty is. But you just know her by her other name. Her other name was Harriet Tubman. And Harriet made her way to Pennsylvania to find her freedom. And there she got her first job. And you know what? Friday came and she was amazed because people gave her money. It's the first time in her life that she had ever received a paycheck. Think about what she would do with that. Now let me tell you what she did with that. She started saving every dollar that she could so that she could then make return trips to get other slaves and to free them and bring them back with her. That's how she invested her money because she had suffered and she didn't want anybody else to suffer. Harriet led so many slaves to freedom on the Underground Railroad. On her second to last trip, she was able to, to bring and free her mother and father. The only person left in her family was her sister. And that would be her last trip to go back to get her sister. At this time, in today's dollars, the bounty on her head was a million dollars. Because she never lost a slave. Not one. She had a gun with her. And she was famous for pointing the gun at the slave and saying, this isn't for the slave owners. This isn't pe for the people who might be chasing us. This is for you. I cannot compromise the Christians who open up their houses as safe houses to get us to, to freedom. I can't compromise people knowing who they are. So if you're going to turn back, it will be with a bullet in your back. But she never lost a single slave. But on that last trip back to get her sister, by the time she got back, her sister had died. And again, she could have felt sorry for herself. 
But instead, she took another family with her that was ready to go. She was famous for many reasons. Again, she's, she's known as being one of the only conductors on the railroad that never lost any of her passengers. But Harriet was also the first woman to lead a military campaign during the Civil War. Her stealthiness and ability to get in and out and know who to trust and know who not to trust made her one of the first female spies that America ever had. And soldiers after the war were given a railroad pass to be able to ride for free after the war. That was one of the benefits of serving in the war. And so Harriet got one. And when Harriet tried to use hers, a train conductor got so mad because he thought she had stolen it. What, what is this African-American woman doing with a, a, a soldier's pass? That he and a group of men forcibly removed her and threw her into the baggage car and broke several of her bones. Ironic, right, that it was a conductor? But this forced, this suffering and affliction forced Harriet to rely on her church family and her friends to help her with her farm for several months while she healed. And this suffering led her to start raising money for a home for older African Americans that needed an assisted living style of housing. And she began taking speaking engagements to help be able to pay for this house. And eventually Harriet herself moved out of her house and had to move into this house. And according to her biographer, when she suddenly, one day, she just got out of bed and walked around looking at the house, looking at everything God had done through her. Taking it all in, she laid back down in her bed and passed away. Harriet, or Minty as I like to call her, let the suffering and affliction that she experienced shape her and inform her into how she could love and serve others. Which is exactly the way Paul ends this chapter. In verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Understand in verse 12, the prerequisite for becoming blameless and having hearts that are blameless in holiness before our God is loving one another and loving all. And that's empowered by God and given by God. It's not something we're doing on our own goodness. And that's something you can see over and over and over in the life of Harriet Tubman. Is it something that people can see in your life this morning? Have you let the suffering and affliction shape you into the man or woman that God wants you to be that's serving others, that's loving others? 
Or have you let it embitter you? Or anger you? Pushing you farther away from him rather than closer to him. As we close this morning, we're going to have a time of repentance and confession. And then come and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is representative of the suffering that made a relationship with Jesus or with God possible through Jesus. The elements of the Lord's Supper are his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. Again, means of suffering and affliction that leads us to glory. As you sit there and take a moment and just pray and reflect, and again, I encourage you to confess and repent of the ways in which you have allowed the, uh, 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 pain and suffering and affliction to push you away from God. So you would confess that this morning. That you would repent of that this morning. And maybe some of you here, you, some of this may be new to you. That's okay. Praise God you're here. He clearly wanted you here for a reason. Hopefully this opens your eyes to a new understanding of the gospel this morning. And for some of you, that, that may mean taking that first step of confession and repentance and putting your faith and trust in him. And then taking up your cross and following him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Without him, this would not be possible, Lord. But with him and through him, all things are now possible for us. And God, thank you that nothing in this life is wasted, not even the suffering and affliction that we face in a sinful world with sinful people. Lord, you are sovereign over all. And Lord, you have a way of taking that evil and what is meant for evil and, and using it for our good. In the same way, you took the cross that was meant to be the ultimate expression of evil. And three days later, you turned it into the most glorious.